It's impossible to talk about the transition to clean energy without talking about transportation. In season one of Mission Transition, we talked about electric cars, electric big rig trucks, even electric ferries. But while electrifying our current system of transportation is better than using fossil fuels, we also need to start rethinking our whole notion of how and why we go from point A to point B. Hi, I'm Susan Elrington with Caitlin Vernon, and you're listening to Mission Transition, Clean Energy and Beyond. Sierra Club BC produces this podcast miniseries on Lekwungen territory. Hi, Caitlin. Hi, Sue. In this episode, we're going back to the future. Ten years ago, as Vancouver geared up for the Winter Olympics, the city used mass transit to manage the potential traffic nightmares as hundreds of thousands of people poured into the downtown core every day. So what did they do right and what difference did it make? We'll look at those questions and what planners today are looking at to move people around more efficiently. And we'll feature a full-length interview with a man who draws a very different picture for the future of transportation than you might have imagined. A future, he says, isn't that far away. Caitlin, I think it's fair to say that car culture in North America is pretty deeply ingrained. It's it's almost undeniable, you know. I mean, some people mm-hmm. venerate them. Others rely on them for almost all of their daily living tasks. And increasingly, many people are considering that switch to electric vehicles. Do you know, Caitlin, we even now have an electric car racing circuit that includes Porsche and BMW and Mercedes-Benz? Well, besides the fact that most people can't yet afford electric cars, let alone those particular electric cars, um, is switching to electric vehicles enough? By the time we manufacture the cars, we maintain the roads, and and even produce enough electricity that's required to run the cars, there's environmental impacts from all of that. And it's not really the kind of big picture shift that we're needing in response to the climate crisis. Oh, what do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, people often think that we can switch to electric and then keep everything else in our lives the same. And electric vehicles certainly are part of the solution. We heard a lot about that in our first season, but not on their own. It's Unfortunately, it's not quite so easy, is it? <laughs> so, Sue, what would it look like to get out of our cars and more into mass transportation? Well, to look at that question, we're going to go and look back at the Olympics in Vancouver in 2010, because that was one of the goals of the Olympic Transportation Plan, to encourage more people to use mass transit and to do it in the most sustainable way possible. Now, I sat down with Dale Bracewell to talk about that. He's the manager of transportation planning for the city of Vancouver now, and he was the lead on transportation planning for the Olympics. Ultimately, people walking, people biking, and people taking transit is a more efficient way Um, for us to use our public realm to move more people. And so that was already our policy and our planning context. Um, And so we made it clear for for Van Ock and the organization of the Olympic Games um, that we wanted to be great hosts. We wanted athletes and officials to move around reliably, uh, but we also wanted to welcome the world, and that meant more people, and then that meant let's focus on sustainable modes. So, Sue, what kinds of things did they do differently for how people got around during the Olympics? Well, Caitlin, the big ticket item was obviously the opening of the Canada Line SkyTrain. But Dale says there were many other measures as well. Yeah, well, let's let's start with people walking. That's our highest uh, priority mode. And so uh, in a really fun way, we were just diving into now something that's really kind of a, a part of our work plan. And this was a, a time where we tested out pedestrian corridors. Uh, so we had Robson Street for the first time uh, closed for 12 hours of the day. We had uh, at one time 150,000 people walking on Robson in one day. Um, but that the other 12 hours of the day was still allowing the, the businesses to move goods and of course, uh, support the, the next day of activities and purchasing. Um, 
so it had a real festive and kind of welcoming and kind of really set up um, a real walking environment. Um, even though it was February, we had done things like uh, bike parking the, at the venue, so, so that helped for at least the season of that. Um, but then a real big kudos to Translink, um, where we worked really hard with them uh, just to be ready. And uh, then they stepped up and they actually provided um, things like SkyTrain, hitting points of time where Candleline hit over 200,000 uh, people per day. So just uh, unprecedented uh, record numbers of people walking, people biking and people taking transit, um, especially in and around uh, downtown Vancouver. It's great to see what's possible when there's such support for doing things differently. Of course, all of this was was very temporary, which probably helped get the broad public buy-in that it needed. Yeah, and... You know, even though it was difficult to drive around downtown Vancouver during those three weeks, I don't remember a great big public outcry or complaint about the traffic. And and Dale says that's because leading up to the games, they did a lot of talking to manage expectations. We had actually over 160 stakeholder meetings. So, for example, we met with, you know, midwives who were, you know, saying we still need to know how we're going to have to move around reliably. Uh, Babies are still going to be born during the Olympic Games. And, you know, so having all sorts of different uh, meetings with business communities uh, and local communities in terms of the, the impacts that they might have been going through or anticipating. And so really, I would say a large part of it was getting people expected for the extra amount of people movements that we were going to have for the games, but also then kind of understanding kind of their their realities and maybe not being able to solve what, what otherwise one could have been some, some issues, but being able to mitigate them as, as best we can. And so I'll, I'll at least point to the public engagement and, and the consultation as being a very important part of ultimately being able to be successful while we hosted the world. The big takeaway for me in all this is what can be accomplished when there's a shared collective goal. And So how much of the success at getting folks out of their cars and onto buses or bikes lasted after the games were over? Well, the city of Vancouver did change Robson Street, you'll recall, quite significantly, and ridership on the Canada line is still not far below the standard set during the games. But a lot of people did return to their cars. Some people told us while they had success during the games, they actually got out of their cars um, they accepted that, you know, the demands were there for one, two, or maybe even three weeks uh, of a time. But they said, you know, I had to get back into my car. Um, this might be someone maybe who's driving into Vancouver. But they said, if you actually provide the better transit on an ongoing basis, um, then I'll gladly come back. It gave us uh, the perfect behavioral kind of response to a challenge. Because what we did actually right after the games is we started our engagement on what is now our new long-range transportation plan called Transportation 2040. And so what it did is allowed us to engage our own residents in business and said, hey, remember when we had the Olympic Games? Remember when we actually provided you better walking and better cycling and better transit? So how do we work, work towards that as our future in Transportation 2040? And so it was a real genuine conversation where essentially uh, the summary was, yes, it was successful for the games, but the city and Translink, you had actually provided us with those better opportunities to be out of our car. And so what it did is it gave us the foundation. So it was a real behavioral and tangible opportunity for us to kind of tap in uh, fresh into the minds of our residents and our business community. Although that Olympic experience was for a one-time event, you know, it showed people what was possible and that encouraged that sense of I don't know, acting in the greater good. And that influenced the discussions around transportation policy. 
Yeah, all of this reminds me of what the Postal Workers Union talked about in our in season one of Mission Transition. They, they talked about how the urgency of climate change requires a response similar to what happened in World War II, where everyone, government, industry, individuals, everyone rallied together to put the greater good first. And it's, it's almost like what we need for transportation now is similar to the victory gardens of World War II, that, that, that sense that people are willing to be flexible in their own lives and do what's needed for a broader collective goal. It seems that people did that during the Olympics. So I guess the question now is, can we do it over the longer term? Well, Dale Bracewell says he thinks so. In fact, after a lot of consultation, he's come up with a plan with various stakeholders, and it's called Transportation 2040. But in fact, that's not the end of the planning. It's really the beginning. Transportation 2040 now is no longer our one and only guiding document as we think about people moving in Vancouver. Um, We have our Greenest City Action Plan and now the Renewable City Strategy. Um, And so we've really ramped up our efforts to be working closely with our sustainability colleagues, engaging in the conversations of what we're learning about the possibilities of sea level rise and how that would affect our transportation network. But it's all guiding us towards the same uh, provision of more walking, cycling and transit, but kind of with a bit of greater urgency. Hearing about Vancouver and the consultation they're doing to inform how they're planning this transportation network, it makes me think, Sue, about how important it is to be inclusive when we look at transportation and how to support people in getting out of their cars, particularly thinking about marginalized communities. Mm-hmm. When you think about it, a bus pass in Victoria is $85 a month. In Vancouver, a monthly pass ranges from 95 to $174 a month. You know, there are a lot of people living pretty close to the edge who, who just can't afford that. For sure. And You know, if you're a single mom who's holding down two or more minimum wage jobs to try and pay the rent, uh, you might not have time to take the bus between your multiple jobs and picking your kids up from school. And, And so I think part of making transportation accessible is about the price. And part also is about making sure the systems work for the people who need them for everybody, really. Mm-hmm. And I know the city of Victoria is working on a number of accessibility solutions. For example, they're partnering with a local college to develop a better way for Indigenous students to be able to get to school. And that's been a bit of a challenge for some of those students who don't live close to major population centres. Hmm. Yeah, and Victoria also recently announced that kids 18 and under will be able to ride the city's buses for free. So that's that's a pretty great move. The city says that the cost will be covered by charging for Sunday parking downtown, which which had previously been free, uh, which is then really one more incentive to take a bus or ride your bike downtown on a Sunday instead of a car. So that seems like all good news, but, you know, the city council is already deflecting some criticism that revenue from that Sunday parking is not going to cover all of the costs of this free bus pass. Yeah, I guess that speaks to the level of commitment that this transition will take. It's not always going to be easy or look perfect. But it's to its credit that the city has committed to this and is going to find a way to make it happen. And I want to mention another project that Victoria is working on. Caitlin, you're familiar with what you've heard of as GPS. It's it's linked to something called GIS on your phone, right? Yes, the mapping. A lot of people would be lost without it. <laughs> well, GIS stands for Geographic Information System. And that means it's tracking where you are going, how you're moving around. And the city, along with BC Transit, BC Ferries, U-Bicycle and, and Moto Car Share, are working on sharing all of that information to create this database. And... 
the database would be used for something they're calling smart mobility. And smart mobility is something we're going to dive into with our guest right after a short break. You're listening to Mission Transition, and we'll be back in a moment with a look at the road we could be going down with changes to how we're thinking about our personal transportation. My name is James Sucola, and I'm a member of the Sierra Club Board of Directors. In my day job, I'm an executive vice president for the BC Government Service Employees Union, and I'm really interested in talking about the intersection between environment and economy, and I think that we as an organization do a great job of finding alternatives for what our economy can look like in the future. Sierra Club's a great organization, and I hope that you would consider joining or make a donation or volunteer so that you can support the fine work that all of us do. You're listening to Mission Transition, Clean Energy and Beyond. This podcast is produced by Sierra Club BC. I'm Susan Elrington, along with Caitlin Vernon. And we're talking about transportation strategies as we transition to clean energy. So you've talked about how the future of transportation might mean changes that are hard for us to imagine. Can you say more about that? I I can, Caitlin. I had a fascinating conversation with Gordon Price. Now, Gordon teaches transportation planning as a fellow at Simon Fraser University. And he was a city councillor in Vancouver from 1986 to 2002. And it was there that he sat on the transportation board. And then later he took part in some of the planning for the Olympics. So what did Gordon have to say about transportation? Well, he had some provocative ideas about what the future could bring, Caitlin. I want to ask you first, what's your vision when you think of the future of transportation? Mm-hmm, that's a good question. I would, I would think of a lot of public transit, uh, bike lanes, pedestrian-friendly areas, Lots of electric vehicles, probably electric cars and trucks, but not as many vehicles as we see on the road today. Probably more car shares and bike shares. Probably a lot more electric bikes. Also, I know that uh, daily I see more and more electric bikes passing me on the bike lanes of Victoria. I think many people would answer pretty much the same way. And, you know, despite the growth in car shares, most people would still assume that you own your own transportation, whether that's your own car or your own electric bike. Indeed. But not everyone has that same vision. And Gordon is about to outline what some corporations, maybe think about Uber and Amazon and Google, could be thinking about when it comes to the future of transportation. It's called smart mobility. And those companies and some others are looking at it with an eye to how to make money from it. And while the scenario Gordon is about to present may or may not come to pass, he effectively makes a good point. While we focus on asking for more electric buses and bike lanes, some people and corporations are thinking in a much different way, and they could just overtake us into a world of decreasing democracy and more ownership by private interests. Yeah, this is a really important thing to be thinking about. This issue of corporate ownership came up before when we looked at energy democracy in episode four, and it seems that we're seeing more and more this private corporate ownership stepping into realms of public interest Uh, in many areas, including transportation. Yeah, we are definitely seeing that. And, you know, I'll warn you that this interview could anger you. It might frustrate you. um, It could intrigue you. But what we hope it's going to do is get you to start conversations about how we move forward with technology and the changes it'll bring for us and what our values in a changed world will be. Now, Gordon stopped me in my tracks when we started talking about transportation by asking me simply, what is transportation? I hemmed and I hawed and I I muttered something about it's how we go from point A to point B. And then Gordon started talking. It's about stopping 
we hardly ever just move for the purpose of moving, maybe for pleasure recreation, but generally we use transportation, whatever it is, feet to transit, to get someplace. It's the place that matters, what we can do there. And it's why transportation adds value, why it's always connected to real estate. You find that in the first age of transportation in Vancouver, streetcar, freed people from the distance they could walk in a day, made land much cheaper. Well, the, the neighborhoods we love in Vancouver, streetcar neighborhoods. Yeah, so that was the first stage. And then the introduction of the automobile. And by about two decades after the Second World War, it was all about the automobile, auto dominance, you know. I call it motordom, motordom 1.0. So you can see that every technology and the way that we adapt to it shapes our city, our lives, you could say our civilization. Well, we're there again. So I suppose the last big one might have been suburbia, when we really embraced car automobile. culture. Automobile. We made the automobile a member of the household. It had its own room in our house. Now we stand where we have to make a change again. We know we have to change no, something. No, no, it's a process. Uh, very rarely do we ever get together and say, hey, let's make a major change, and then we all gear up for that. No, it, technology changes or gets introduced. And, and the uh, technology of our time, a good, uh, good metaphor actually, is the, is the phone, right? I don't recall anyone waking up and saying, okay, time to convert. You know, it happened. And in the same way, and indeed using the phone, it's, it's changing and it will certainly only speed up the change in how we, the users, deal with all modes of transportation, how they're integrated how we pay for it, how we regulate it, how we make our cities hopefully more livable, more efficient. I mean, we can see the prospects of doing that, and it's on its way. Right now, we are a car-dependent culture for the most part. We're trying to make some inroads with things like bikes and walking and, and mass oh, yeah. transit. And we've made some, some oh, inroads huge. about that. Let's stop right there, because this is so typical. People really discount the change. So they think we're, as you said, car-dominant. We, we're trying to be more walkable and more bike-friendly and all that good stuff. Yeah, no, we are. This has changed already in Metro Vancouver. The commitment that we've made to transit... The amount of biking that's occurring, the amount we walk, 50% of the trips in the city of Vancouver now are by what we used to call the alternate modes. And the car is dropping. And I'll give you one reason to indicate why this is happening. Car share. Car share. My ability to access where a car is, reserve it, go to it, open it, drive it, and only use it for a single trip, be billed once a month almost invisibly, so that it's just another choice. Could take the bus, could cycle, could walk. Depends what I'm wearing, what the weather is, who I'm meeting, how far I have to, I get to choose. And I have the information right here on my phone, right, already. This is already the case, and that's speeding up. Now, I'm not the only one to have figured that out. There are people, I'm sure, sitting around boardroom tables trying to figure out, this is the, maybe the next big thing. How are we going to position ourselves? How can we profit from it? How can we accelerate it? I'm sure, I know this is going on. Hey, Uber, what do you think about this? Just to be clear here, what we're talking about is kind of moving away from the notion that we have to get all the cars off the road or everybody has to go to bikes or everybody has to walk, right? That's a formula for failure. I've been to Amsterdam. I know how difficult it is as a pedestrian because there are too many bicycles, too many, and the parking problems and just the difficulties of managing them. It's as true for the bicycle as it would be true for the car. Don't limit your choices. 
So you're, if we're not going to limit our choices, but we don't necessarily all have to own a car, as you say, with car share. So what does this look like then? For, for me as a, as a consumer of transportation, what does this look like? Well, may I suggest you go to a transit app and a, a few guys on the plateau, as it was said to Montreal, called uh, Transit transit app, you can get City Mapper. you can go to Google, you can go and see all the different modes layered over a map, and they will give you choices. So that's what it looks like, and that's how you can access it already. That's true, but you can't pay for it all through one provider in the same way that you do all your telecommunications. Now, I'll show you how quickly where this goes. How much do you spend for your phone, cable, home phone if you have one, I mean, all telecommunications? What would you say for Let's call it a couple of hundred yeah, dollars a month. that's what almost everybody says, a couple of hundred. Do you pay it to one provider, a Rogers, a Telus, a Shaw? Two, but All right. that's okay. Does it come out of your account seamlessly every month? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, yeah, uh-huh, that's right. So it's very convenient. Could you live without it? Probably not. Probably. Being honest, no. probably and not. There's no reason why you would. It's just so integrated into your life. Okay, uh, let, <laughs> putting on a hat here. Uh, I'm going to be your friendly transportation service provider in the same way that Shaw or Telus is your friendly telecommunications provider. And I'm going to provide you with all of these choices and integrate them and bill you once a month. It'll be seamless. A number of different packages for you. I'm going to contract with a lot of other forms of transportation, transit obviously. Uh, I'm looking for new ideas and lots of inventions and other things that I can put into your package if you're so inclined to subscribe. And and if you're prepared to say, "Mm, I don't know, maybe $500 a month after all, car, average Canadian, 10,000 a year, as you say, get rid of that. And you won't want the liability anyway as it becomes increasingly automated. I'll take that too, and insurance, and change your tires. I'll give you all of these modes, and I'll make sure whether you have the platinum service or the basic service, everyone will be able to have access to it. Any problem there? What do I get for my $500 a month that's different from what you're just talking as a car share? Mm-hmm. Bike share, Uber, deliveries, guaranteed parking, all tolls, the information. Let's see, what else can I add? Anything you can think of that you'd like? I, my goal is to get everybody to subscribe because the cash flow of $500 a month minimum that will come from almost every person in society makes me one of the richest and most powerful entities in existence. I mean, what else do you spend that money on? Mortgage? Okay, banks, they're kind of up there too. But as your transportation service provider, this ability to tap that cash flow allows me to borrow, borrow, to issue debt, in order to build or provide more services that makes me even bigger, more innovative. I'll be providing more things. And, and here's the thing. What am I providing? Access to place. It's about the real estate. If I'm the transportation service provider and I can see in real time every moving thing, I can maximize its efficiency. We can diminish congestion so it's almost not a problem. And I'm going to provide you with convenience that you won't be able to imagine you could live without. For some of this, though, you're relying on, a, as a bus goes by, a public transit system, right? Absolutely. And, and indeed, in some cases, say for a, a city that's not doing too great and has got an expensive transit system, I'll buy it. I'll buy it from them and take it over. They can regulate me. And here's the thing from government's point of view. I'll be the third-party tax. In other words, if people don't want to pay mobility or tolls, we sure, sure see that. Portman Bridge, NDP got in because of that. You can tax me, all included in the, in the cost of the plan. I mean, how much is the tax on a cell phone call? You don't know. You don't care. Well, for government to be able to fund so much or not have to fund it because it's being picked up by the service provider, that's very attractive. 
But with ownership being private, you can also decide what gets developed, what doesn't get developed, may or may not be in the public interest. Darn, you figured it out. (laughs) Damn, I thought I could keep that quiet. Well, absolutely, that's what the streetcar companies did. Vancouver is this combination of, yes, the access out into these lovely neighborhoods, the whole west side of the city, so it was about real estate. Absolutely, the automobile and the economic forces that it unleashed and serves, well, here is not exactly the introduction of new technology. Yeah, there will be electric bikes and scooters, and but the main thing is we're integrating them and providing you with this service. and. Breaking your relationship as an owner of a single vehicle. You won't have to do it. In fact, you won't want to do it. You may not be able to afford to do it. And ultimately, society may decide, no, the days when somebody can drive their own 2,000-pound piece of metal independently in a complex city, slaughter a few people along the way on average, no, those days are over. We've got another way to manage our transportation system, and it doesn't include this individual management of the vehicle, maybe not even its operation. Throwing ideas out here, you see where I'm going. It's not hard to do when you begin to think about this fundamentally changed relationship that we're going to have with the transportation system. Not our car, not our bike, not transit, not you as these separate things. You as someone who lives and moves and gets to places in the city. But a transportation system could be thought of as an essential service, as essential as food, water, shelter, etc. As we switch from individual ownership, where one way or the other you're expected to pick up that cost as a consumer purchase, no, absolutely, transportation will be rather like medical care in our society or education. So yes, everyone will have to have some form of plan. Now, you do not do away with status and differentiation. Sorry to let people down on that. No human history of that. In any society where you're going to have multitudes of users, adapters, providers, one of the ways they will distinguish themselves is on status. I will sell you the premium plan. I will give you this extra special service. You'll pay for it, and anyone will be able to do it, but if you can't, there will be the basic service. And if it's privately owned, where's the accountability? And what does this mean, in a sense, for, for a democracy? Right now, we get to vote people out if yes. they don't do what we want, but that doesn't happen if this is privately owned. No, can't conclude that. But it's a darn good question, and I have no idea. <laughs> uh, I mean, because we're dealing with these entities. Wouldn't we have had a conversation about Google and Uber and Facebook and Amazon 20 years ago? Uh, some of them didn't even exist. Will government have a role here? Absolutely. They're the owners of the rights of way. It's back to real estate. They own the streets. That's huge. So, yeah, there can definitely be government regulation, but a more fundamental question. Uh, So, yeah, government. Well, do you mean that the majority, say, elected from the suburbs, will want to ensure that the city as a whole is designed in a way that's comfortable and convenient for them? Or do we want to make places more urban? Sounds like a culture war kind of thing to me. And I'm sure there will be some of that. Now, who will be these players? Will they be lots of different local providers that are overall regulated by government in some way, blah, blah, blah? Or or are we going to increasingly see consolidation into maybe two, three major players? That seems to be the way we go in our society. Look at telecommunications. Uh, or will it be something that you know we don't know yet because the uh, technology and, and the market is changing so fast? Uh, I think I'll go for that last one. <laughs> That's the safest. So we should reiterate here that this is speculation. This is, oh. this is not already in existence. This well, is it, speculation. It, the thing is, part of it is in existence already. And it's changing by the week, I can tell you, being someone who kind of watches this. 
Oh, what do you know? Uber is buying bike share. Hmm, wants to be a transit company too. Hmm. Ford is really thinking they're going to be more of a service provider than a car manufacturer in a few years. Hmm, I wonder what that thinking is. Gee, Uber and Amazon, what if they got together for freight? Oh, delivery? I think already are. What do you know? And what is government doing in the case of the, elect uh, the electric scooters who just arrived on their doorstep, like literally overnight? They're thinking, well, we can't resist this. We've got to be part of it. How do we begin to regulate all of this? If, if indeed it's even possible, and whether our political masters want us to, does society want us to? That was Gordon Price, who teaches transportation planning at Simon Fraser University. There sure is a lot to think about in there. And for me, I guess one of the takeaways is that there's many ways that we can get out of our cars, and maybe it won't be such a hardship as some people anticipate, given, given this large range of alternatives that are perhaps integrated and easy to use. Yeah, the bigger takeaway for me is that if we aren't paying attention, you know, future modes of transportation might end up being less affordable and more exclusive than even, I don't know, electric cars are today. Yeah, it's a really good point. It makes me think about how probably when the oil and gas industry was expanding, most people weren't looking at the implications of what it would mean to have a few huge corporations owning our energy sources. So now we have to consider what would it mean for a few large corporations to own and control how we get around. Chances are this wouldn't be in our collective interest or affordable to many people. In reality, no one knows if the scenario could unfold the way that Gordon describes it. But we do know that transportation costs money, both for infrastructure and operating costs. Yeah, and that innovation and accessibility are really important. And given, given what we see elsewhere in, a, in our economy, this kind of corporate control over how we get around wouldn't really surprise me. But there are alternatives, things like car co-ops, where the members are the owners and have a say over how the cooperative is run. These sorts of initiatives could be scaled up. And in fact, the ride sharing services and technology that Gordon talked about could potentially be run as a cooperative also. And there could be more government-led initiatives similar to how Victoria is providing free bus service to kids under 18. And you know, Caitlin, we see public transit now grappling with cost recovery for its system. How are we going to face this in the future, especially if we're demanding more from public transit? You know, we need to ensure that whenever private money becomes part of that public system, there's accountability and a mechanism for maintaining our rights of access and mobility. Right. And that needs to be for everyone, not just those who can afford to pay for some fancy system. So we hope this episode has provoked some thought and, and conversation about how we can transition our transportation systems away from a dependency on fossil fuels and do it in a way that is just and equitable and accessible for everyone. There should be some good conversations coming out of this, I hope. And that's it for this episode of Mission Transition. In our next and final episode, join us as we look at the opportunities this transition to clean energy provides for everyone. You know, it all comes together under the umbrella of the Green New Deal, and we're going to find out more about the Green New Deal in Canada. You can find pictures, links, and more info about our podcast guests on our website at sierraclub.bc.ca slash podcast. And also on the website, you can make a donation to make more podcasts possible. I'd like to thank everyone who's already made a gift and North Growth Foundation for their generous support of Mission Transition. And I'd also like to thank Caitlin Vernon for co-hosting. Thank you, Caitlin. Thank you, Sue. And I'd like to give my appreciation to Kat Zimmer for her invaluable help in getting this podcast online and available at your favorite podcast program. 
provider. And most of all, I'd like to thank you for listening.